0: Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and welcome to a fascinating edition of Sounds Jewish. On the show this month, the Israeli woman taking on the International Olympic Committee in her fight for a minute's silence for the Israeli athletes murdered 40 years ago in Munich, among them her former husband. Is the IOC's refusal pure discrimination? Plus, the secret listeners ordered to eavesdrop on the conversations of German Nazis held captive in country mansions around London during the Second World War. We'll be speaking to one of those listeners, 93-year-old Fritz Lustig, on what he discovered all those years ago. And we'll find out why it's now the subject of an innovative piece of theatre. And we'll be hearing from American indie filmmaker Todd Sollins on his latest film, Dark Horse. He talks New Jersey, sad comedies and Seinfeld. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Salam, shalom. shalom. And joining me on the show this month is director Julia Pascal. Welcome back to the pod, because it's not your debut appearance on Sounds Jewish, is it, Julia?
1: It's not. I was here about a year ago with the wonderful David Schneider.
0: Wow. And you're still doing
1: your theatre productions? I am indeed. We are producing The Secret Listeners at the Trent Park, Middlesex University, Trent Park campus.
0: And Trent Park was one of the, the houses that, used, that I mentioned there where the secret listeners were. Uh, you'll be recreating that experience. You've got listeners, you've got Nazis...
1: We haven't got Nazis. We've got some of the testament and some of the texts that was recorded by the secret listeners by people like Fritz and we have memories and uh, symbols and film and movement and singing. We have an extraordinary exploration of the house with its echoes and its history and its resonance and its shadow.
0: You keep exploring Jewish themes in your work? Though.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm actually writing a one-woman play at the moment, which is opening in Macedonia in the middle of August, which is all about terrorism, about a woman who, who is a cop and has to meet a terrorist who has killed her fiancé. Un- I thought, I'm going to write a play that's got no Jewish and I finished it and thought, this is a very Jewish play.
0: As the Olympics were in full swing 40 years ago, the world woke up shocked and traumatized by grainy TV images of a real life hostage crisis unfolding before their eyes. In the early hours of September the 5th, eight Palestinians from the terrorist group Black September entered the Olympic village in Munich dressed as athletes and took 11 Israeli athletes hostage. They were demanding the release of 234 prisoners from Israeli jails. As we all know, the hostage crisis ended in a massacre, with all 11 Israeli athletes murdered. Since then, every four years, the families of those Israeli victims have repeatedly called for a minute's silence to be held at the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, with little success. They're hoping the upcoming London Games, the 10th Olympiad since Munich, will be different. One of the most tireless campaigners is Anki Spitzer, who was married to one of the victims, Fencer Andre Spitzer. And she joins me on the line from Israel now. Welcome to Sounds Jewish, Anki. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Now, it's been 40 years uh, since those tragic events in Munich, Anki. Do those memories, however, still feel very fresh in your mind?
2: Yes, I I suppose so, you know, because it was traumatic, because I was at the Olympic uh, Village. I was in the room just uh, a couple of hours after they were murdered there, and uh, I do vividly remember that. Of course, I want to add that, you know, I I do have a life. I, I... you know, th- talking about the Olympic Games in Munich is, is not my hobby, it's not my profession, it's not my obsession, but it definitely happened. And I do have one, uh, we had one baby daughter who was only two months old, so she is a daily reminder of him as well.
0: As I say, this is a 40-year anniversary of the of the tragedy. But you first pushed for it in 1976, which was just four years after the tragedy. Why didn't it happen then? That would have, it would have been an immediate reaction to it. Why did it not happen in '76? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I immediately after the Munich Olympics uh, and for the upcoming uh, Montreal Olympics in '76, we already started writing to the uh, International Olympic Committee. Then we traveled, Ilana Romano and I, we traveled to Montreal and we we tried to get this done. And we were told at that time that it was impossible to do this because at the time there were 21 Arab delegations. This is what they said to us. And they were afraid that they would get up and leave if there would be any mention of the Israeli uh, athletes murdered in Munich. But the excuses have changed over the years. And, for example, in Barcelona, the Olympics in '92, we were told that we were bringing politics into the Olympic Games. Well, we certainly didn't. The murder in Munich uh, was a political-motivated murder. That's true. But we didn't bring in politics. And then the, the June uh, change towards uh, that it was not in the protocol of the uh, opening ceremony, but, which is nonsense because it was not in the protocol either that my husband and his friends came home in coffins. And then the very latest excuse was quite recent, and I was told by the president of the Olympic Committee that his hands are tied. And I said, "What do you mean? Because I remember that the athletes' hands were tied and their feet were tied to the furniture in the room when they were kept hostage there." And he said, "Well, in Montreal there were 21 Arab delegations. In um, London there are going to be 46 Arab delegations. And it's not the time we can do. We cannot do this yet. It's, it's it's too early yet." I said, "What are you talking about? 40 years we have been knocking at your doors, and why is it?" too early. What do you want me to do? You know, when I'm, I'm going to be 90 years old, then, then I should come, al- come around. And he said, well, it's not the time yet. But I told him that if I'm an Ilana Romano, when we are going to be too old, our children will uh, continue the fight and the children of our children until we hear the words that we so much want, because we owe it to these athletes who came we're really, you know, with the, uh, with the dreams and the expectations, like, all oh, athletes who go to the Olympics. And they came home in a, uh, in, in a coffin. So we want to hear that, and we are not going to give up.
0: Anki, do you think that the, um, the, you know, it's a sensitive time in Middle Eastern politics? One could have said that at any point for the last 50, 60 years. You know, as it, it, it's always a sensitive time. Uh, you recently called the IOC's refusal then... Um, a case of discrimination. You even said that the, the, they had the wrong religion, the victims, and they came from the wrong country. Why did you say that?
2: Yeah, that was really the first time in 40 years that I used that word. Because, you know, after 40 years getting all kinds of excuses, at one point I have to think to myself, there must be something else, because all these lame excuses, they don't bring anything. So there must be another reason and that's i came only to the conclu- conclusion now even you know we have at the moment 88,000 people who signed the petition jews non-jews from all over the world for a minute of silence that you know it's a worldwide movement that that i did not initiate you know it just happened so it's not such a strange thing to 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 want this and you know after all this i think the only conclusion can be that it is discrimination because only two years ago at the vancouver winter olympics there was the terrible accident with one of the lugers who was killed in a training accident and he died on the day of the opening ceremony they did what they were supposed to do they mentioned his name they stood for a minute of silence they lowered the flags they they sent the condolences to the families to the friends and to his country, and you know, this was only two years ago, so why are they not doing this for the 11 Israeli athletes who were killed in the darkest day of the, of the whole modern Olympic history? You know, if they would have done it, we would have gone away, and we would have lived with our own tragedy uh, in, a, in the private atmosphere, but because they don't allow us to do this, that's why why it continues on and on and on. Uh,
0: the preparations are underway for the uh, beginning of uh, of the Olympics here in London. It's not long to, to, to it. You, you mentioned 80, 88,000 uh, people have signed your petition this year. There's a very high-profile campaign. Do you think there's a chance in these next few weeks before the Olympics begin that they might change their mind?
2: Yeah, you, go, you know, Jason, something happened that never happened before. We, as the families of the victims, we have always uh, had to do, uh, do this fight by ourselves. We were not backed by anyone. But this year, uh, to my biggest surprise, a lot of countries, they decided to, um, to do something. Uh, today, I just came back from Jerusalem, where I met the Speaker of the House of Representatives from Australia. They told me that they stood uh, silent for one moment, including... The prime minister and the the head of the opposition, they all came, and they stood a a minute of uh, silence for the memory of them. Uh, The Canadian parliament has done the same thing. The U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, they have passed resolutions, and they are going to stand minutes of silence. The same for Germany, and even from the London Municipality Assembly, I got word that they will do the same. It is unbelievable. It's overwhelming. I'm... I'm absolutely thrilled that that everybody is doing this. We did not solicit their support. They just gave it voluntarily to us. And I hope with the pressure that the people finally will bend in the IOC and they will see that what we are asking is not something hateful. It is the opposite.
0: Despite that uh, disappointment, if it doesn't happen for you this year, you do have some joy coming because it's your, your daughter's wedding. Is it this week? It's the day after tomorrow. The day after <laughs> yes. tomorrow. Mazeltov. Well, thank yes. you very much for taking the time to talk to us during, a, during what must a very frantic period. It's in your house, the wedding, isn't it?
2: It is in my house and it is a very uh, happy event and that's why I want to underline we, are, we, we do what we have to do in, for the memory of our, of, of our loved ones. But life goes on and life is stronger than anything else. Stronger than politics and stronger than discrimination. We are absolutely convinced that one day we will hear those words. We believe in it, we believe that it is right, and we will hear those words at
0: the opening ceremony. Anke Spitzer, thank you very much indeed. Muzzle tov on your daughter's wedding. Enjoy that day. Uh, Julia Pascal is in the studio with me as my guest this month. You actually wrote a play last year about uh, the Munich uh, massacre called Honeypot. Very much at the centre of the drama was the, was the massacre. Uh, what inspired you to kind of bring this back as a subject, to have that as a dramatic backdrop? Although I can't think of anything much more dramatic than that.
1: I think because the Olympics were coming, there was such a ballyhoo about it. And I began to look at the darker side of the Olympics, um, One, that the carrying of the torch, for example, comes from Hitler's Olympic Games, 1936, and I was thinking a lot about Munich, and then I was thinking about Munich in 1972 and what happened there, and that we hadn't had the minute's silence, that there was no recognition of what had happened, and so I constructed a play based on a woman who was a Mossad agent who was claiming vengeance for the Olympic assassinations.
0: Right, well, we had the Spielberg film, Munich, uh, Kevin MacDonald's documentary one day in September. It is something with Anke Spitzer's kind of work. It, it is nevertheless something that can't go away. It is bound up inextricably, it seems to me, with Olympic history. That's right,
1: the 1936 Olympics and the Jewish and the black achievements, and then 1972, the murder of the Jewish Israeli athletes. It's very hard to peel away the Jewish experience from the German experience, as we keep finding, and so that's what fascinated me: our love-hate ex- experience and feelings about Germany.
0: Uh, do you think that uh, a minute silence could ever happen, or Anke Spitzer's demands? You were listening to, to, there. Do you think she could be successful? She's passionate enough about it.
1: The problem is it is political. Though the fear of offending the Arab countries is so strong and that overrides any sensitivity towards the actual history. But I, I think it's very dangerous to shut up this history, to keep it quiet. I find it quite
0: malevolent. It is uh, an extraordinary story uh, and one that we, we sh- I, I think we're destined to repeat uh, for as long as the Olympics go on. Uh, Julia, thank you very much indeed. This is Sounds Jewish, sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London for The Guardian. American filmmaker Todd Solondz has carved a niche for himself as a cruel observer of New Jersey, which he so memorably labelled a state of irony back in 1998's Happiness, perhaps his best-known work, which followed the travails of sisters in a secular Jewish family. His latest film, Dark Horse, follows Abe, a schlubby Jewish man in his 30s who still lives at home with his parents, played in a genius spot of casting by Christopher Walken and Mia Farrow. At a Jewish wedding, Abe, played by Jordan Gelber, meets the beautiful but heavily medicated Miranda, played by Selma Blair, who also still lives at home, and the two begin a painful, awkwardly comic romance under the director's merciless eye. In general, are you more into frontrunners or dark horses? I kind of see myself as a frontrunner mentality,
3: but
4: then I like to play on my dark horse qualities. Just strategically, if you know what I mean. When's your birthday?
3: January 30th. Interesting. Why? We met on September 30th. Yeah? Well, a lot of people tell you there's no meaning to dates and numbers, but I'll tell you something. They're wrong. And it has nothing to do with astrology, which is like total bullshit. What's your
0: sign? I'm a Gemini.
3: No, no, no. It has to do with the dates and numbers themselves. Why? Because they mean something.
0: Although Solons is now a devout atheist, he did grow up in a traditional Jewish home, learning to speak Hebrew before he spoke English. So I asked him how much of his Jewish upbringing in New Jersey did he channel into the film.
3: I don't ever want to disguise uh, the Jewish characters in my films any more than I'm out to advertise that. It's just a that's who they are, and and uh, I'm I'm very familiar, of course, with the, the social milieu uh, that I've I've depicted here. I mean, it's only natural that since it's I've got a, a kind of uh, facility mm-hmm. for for uh,
0: examining this this world. In, in um, your your character Abe, uh, played by Jordan Gelber, his um his his bedroom is is a kind of is a kind of arrested development testimony to his youth. His high school, all his all his toy collection is still there. and there's the, there's that Hebrew Coke can uh, that was there, and uh, several so other, other other items of Judaica are in the the house that is owned by uh, Christopher Walken and Mia Farrow, played the parents. There's an Israel poster in there. Uh, that decor is important to your film, especially in, in this film. I think the decor is can be quite mocking and quite vicious as well.
3: Yeah, I have to say the Israel poster was, I was very ambivalent about because at first it was probably my eighth choice poster. The concern I had was I didn't want to to make any a mockery or so any evil. Easy mockery of their political convictions, um, clearly their right of center, and it's clearly a, a family that's very secular. Um, uh, and, and, and this is the, the, this condition that uh, uh, my character Abe Wertheimer is, is afflicted with uh, it really is a pathology that I think you'll only find in a secular uh, prosperous democracy. Is the condition being collecting toys and still being
0: a 17 year old or 16 year old?
3: Well I, I mean the whole concept of collecting you know becomes a pathology when you stop collecting and find that in fact the collection owns you rather mm-hmm. than you owning the collection. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is a a, a character who uh is clings to his youth and the hopes and dreams of that youth and and uh as as the years uh pass by that passage of time uh, evokes a certain kind of poignancy because you're always ever reminded of uh by the the the, the walled paper the the uh, decor and so forth of how there once was a certain kind of cheerfulness and hopefulness for the future, and when you see how things didn't pan out the way the parents,
0: the family had had hoped, it pulls at you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it pulls and anyone in the audience, especially has a brother who's a, a successful doctor in California as well. So why can't you be more like the brother? I mean, I, I think many, many families will have, have had that, afflicted that on, yes. on, on various stages of, of, yes. of children. Uh, you had Christopher Walker to be a pharaoh play the, the Jewish parents in this one. Neither of them are Jewish? Uh, uh that's correct.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, and yet, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think, you have to be careful, uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, if you, it, cast someone who's obviously jewish it, it can feel a little ham-handed not to to speak ill <laughs> of the pig <laughs> in, in, in any bad pun sort of way a little heavy-handed let's say um uh and uh having someone like me and chris uh, it, it 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 it
0: neutralizes that that problem I mean, I, I really enjoyed seeing them play that. And they, they watched Seinfeld, as you say. It's a very secular kind of uh, acceptance. If you look at
3: Seinfeld, uh, even uh, the George Costanza character, it was clearly, it was a Jewish character, but they had to make him Greek, mm. you know. That they had to camouflage the Jewishness so that it didn't become too Jewish and therefore wouldn't be so mainstream and so accepted. Uh, And in fact, uh, the Abe Wertheimer character is is, uh, the kind of tragic counter-life version of that uh, George Costanza character that jason alexander played in the sitcom which is why it was important that the parents watch that as 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 the the kind of uh comforting sitcom version
0: of their own troubled life that was todd solon speaking to me recently in london julia pascal you're still here you've seen the film now does it strike you as a particularly jewish film in
1: some ways yes a very modern jewish film of a medicated family a suburban family an american family who do not connect, and uh, I have to say, I have some family like that, so it struck a few bells for me.
0: That that character uh, of a, but we do kind of, our heart goes out to him in some kind of way. But in the end, he's a sort of a hero. He's the hero of his own story. He's a Nebish.
1: He's, he's a form of Woody Allen. Of course, seeing Mia Farrow as the mother brought that back. I love the idea of the Nebish, and I wished, in a way, that he got much further into the the life story of the Nebish. I got slightly disturbed by the way it went into fantasy, and that began to drown the
0: nebishness of that character. And what do you think about Mia Farrow as a Jewish mother? Having seen her as the kind of, you know, as the muse for Woody Allen in so many films, to see her now playing the kind of, kind of really put upon Jewish mother <laughs> sitting on the couch watching Seinfeld, it seemed, seemed a kind of genius bit of casting.
1: It is. It, it's a both genius and it's a bit odd mm. because you can't see her without the backstory of her films with Woody Allen, and I presume that's what he wants where she was the gawky non-Jew with the Gentile girl, the shiksa, the idealized shiksa, suddenly is morphed into the middle-aged Jewish mom.
0: Imagine this scene, top-ranking Nazi prisoners held captive in the comfort of an English country mansion. Whilst unknown to them, groups of German and Austrian refugees, many of whom are Jewish, sit huddled in cellars underground, listening in on their conversations and transcribing what they hear. These records then provide invaluable help to British intelligence during the war. It all sounds like part of a Robert Harris novel, but these scenes did actually take place throughout the Second World War. And the conversations form part of an innovative piece of theatre, The Secret Listeners, produced by my studio guest Julia Pascal, which takes place later this month at Trent Park, one of the country mansions in question. Joining me now also in the studio is one of the secret listeners himself, 93-year-old Fritz Lustig. Thanks very much for coming in. Now, Fritz, you were stationed at a similar listening house, Latimer House in Chesham, and there was another one as well, wasn't there? Trent Park, Latimer House, and...
4: And Wilton Park near beaconsfield Buckinghamshire. I, I, the,
0: the idea of these kind of tranquil, idyllic British country houses being being occupied by by, by high-ranking Nazis and refugees. You, can you take us back to those days? What was it like inside the, inside the uh, those houses? Well, it
4: was very well. We were not inside the mansion house actually, because there were special buildings in which we did the listening, and the prisoners were presumably also kept in specially erected buildings, but we were not even told where those cells were. Uh, The listeners and the prisoners were kept strictly separate. We never saw them, and they never saw us.
0: But presumably you heard them in your ears, to the point of you knowing exactly the voices you were hearing.
4: We did indeed. I mean, where I was, which was in Latimer House and uh, uh, Wilton Park, uh, there were only cells with two prisoners in each. So we only had to distinguish the voices of two prisoners who were very often chosen so to make it easy to differentiate between them, either high or low voice, or different dialects, German dialects. Uh, And anyway, we got used to them very quickly and knew who was who.
0: So uh, where, how did you pick up well, What was the technology of the time? Bugging, microphones? Tell, tell us how that, that, that sound got relayed to you in your
4: bunker. There were microphones hidden in the light fittings in the cells. Uh, and we had, uh, like an old-fashioned telephone switchboard in front of us, with rows of holes where we put a plug in uh, according to which cell we wanted to listen to. And we had headphones and had a turntable next to us where we could record whenever something important was being said. And
0: was something important being said quite Oh often?
4: yes, quite frequently. Uh, different from Trent Park, where the uh, conversations were mainly of political and uh, strategic importance, we listened to tactical and uh, st- and. Uh, warfare necessary information where the prisoners would mainly talk about their what they did in their units. You had probably uh, a prisoner who belonged to the Air Force uh, and his cellmate belonged to the Army. So they had a lot to tell each other about their relative services.
0: So they presumably had no idea you were listening?
4: No idea at all.
0: Do you remember the, the single most jaw-dropping piece of information you heard? Fritz, can you tell us it now, many years later?
4: Well, the one I remember especially, and it's the only one which I actually do remember in detail, is after the German battleship Scharnhorst was sunk off Norway in December 1942. I think there were two or 3,000 people on board, and only less than 100 were saved. And we had all those people saved, and of course it was very interest, of great interest to the Admiralty what they had to say about the life on the battleship and the sinking itself.
0: So you that was able to then provide information on how they would have worked and, 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 and that, a way to I suppose, right. combat yeah, them. That's right. So many of the um, the, the, the people working in, as secret listeners would have been Jewish, I assume, as as refugees who'd come over. You, you, you yourself indeed, had come from indeed, Berlin indeed, before yes, the war. Yeah. Did, did you did you acknowledge each other's Jewishness? That, uh, uh, I don't you...
4: think our Jewishness mattered at all at that time. Uh, we were all very much concentrating on on getting important information and not missing anything which should be recorded. There were stool pigeons which were German prisoners who had been turned, wanted to help us either because they were anti-Nazi or for some other reason perhaps to get better treatment. And there was one in particular who was called SP-1, stool pigeon 1, who we knew was an ex-German Jewish refugee who uh, played a German officer. Uh, We never saw him, we never spoke to him, we didn't know who he was, but we knew that he had come from that background and he must have had nerves of steel to, as a German Jew to play a Nazi officer. In the uniform and everything? In the uniform and everything.
0: Were were you aware, however, of what later became known as the Holocaust? Were you aware that the people you were listening to were were perpetrating this as their, as their kind of... Well,
4: there were it. occasional prisoners who had either taken part or had heard of atrocities. Records of those conversations were kept indefinitely they were specially marked in red ink and were kept in an archive.
0: Now, uh, Julia Pascal, as I mentioned, uh, you're here uh, as well joining us. Uh, your theatre company, the Pascal Theatre Company, is staging The Secret Listeners at Trent Park itself later this month. Now, the image, as I've said, of Nazi prisoners above ground and living in luxury and largely Jewish refugees listening into them, uh, it's sort of—it's it's a dramatic construct in itself, isn't it? Is that, is that what kind of attracted you to it?
1: Absolutely, and, and it's very strange because we're doing recordings by German actors of the actual texts in the rooms where the Nazi generals were. And so one has this uncanny feeling of repeating history, and obviously in a very different way, with the next generations. Unlike Fritz, uh, Trent Park did have the listeners underground, and underground in Trent Park is full of cellars, almost dungeon-like, it's very disturbing. There's no air and there's no light. And
0: you're taking the audience into these places? Absolutely. Well, It's an immersive kind of multimedia experience. That's
1: right. They'll be upstairs in these very beautiful salons, which were used before the war to entertain Winston Churchill, Charlie Chaplin and the Windsor family, which is also ironic because you've got the Duke of Windsor and uh, Mrs Simpson who were very much in admiration of Herr Hitler. So there are all sorts of double levels, triple levels going on at the same time. So, yes, it's extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I mean, is it, this is not something I was aware of until recent literature emerged. Now it's a piece of theatre, now it's on Sounds Jewish. But, it, I mean, it would surprise many people to learn that Nazi prisoners of war were living in some comfort, it sounds like, in Trent Park, certainly, although it paints a different picture of, uh, of Latimer House and Wilton Park. But it seems a glamorous setting in which to kind of house these. I suppose they are upmarket, prisoners.
1: They're upmarket prisoners. They were also taken to tea in fancy places in the West End. They were treated very nicely, and there was some criticism when this got known. But there was a strategic reason for that. It was to show the British had not had the morale destroyed by the bombing. So there was all sorts of subterfuge. Stool pigeons were being sent in. They were reading the press and hearing the news from the British point of view. They were being fed information.
0: So they were being fed information, and and was it hoped that they would then talk about this information and that would let slip? It was some kind of bait for them?
1: That's right, they were encouraged to talk. They were given a very easy life. They had tailors. they had a nursing unit. They had their own batmen. They had good meals. They could wander in the grounds. getting
0: they- drunk would have been a good idea <laughs> if you' fine claret and then we, we they would have poured out.
1: I think there was fine Claras. there was fine wine and good food.
0: <laughs> now it's taken quite a while for these stories to emerge, as I say um is it because well, proud as you were of, of what you did during the war and your efforts there, did you not talk about it much or is it, is it a secret that you've carried? Well, we
4: had to sign the Official Secrets Act, which of course uh, obliged us to keep what we were doing very secret. <clears throat> and we never talked about it outside of the uh, outside the camp, only amongst ourselves. Obviously, we didn't tell our families, and only after Bletch- the first books about Bletchley Park were published, and it was obvious that the Official Secrets Act was no, no no longer binding us, did we gradually start talking about it.
0: An, an extraordinary history, and extraordinary to have it have it passed on and then reenacted. That's all for this month, Sounds Jewish. My thanks to Fritz Lustig for sharing those amazing experiences. And thanks to Julia Pascal. Best of luck with the secret listeners at Trent Park on the 22nd of July. You can see our website for more details. Thanks too to Anki Spitzer and Todd Salons and to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. Sounds Jewish is taking its summer break now, what with the euro in crisis and London being the hub of all things cultural and sporting this year. My wife's forcing me to stay at home. We're going glamping. <laughs> I'm glamping Tuesday go camping i'm going glumping i think i'll be back again to tell you about it in time for the jewish new year in september from me jason solomons and my producer sarah peters it's goodbye Salam,